wouldn't zeros and ones and uh, algorithms on on a certain panpsychist view couldn't they still have a degree of consciousness such that you put them together you could still get that higher order consciousness out yeah it can, i mean it could be and i mean lots of panpsychists disagree with me on this and certainly david okay. chalmers does but it just seems to me if as a panpsychist you think consciousness is kind of the stuff of matter yeah then it's weird to think that's gonna go with software rather than hardware you know if consciousness yeah. is stuff of matter that's hardware Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Sedekase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I really love thinking about cool stuff, and you're invited to come think with me. Today, I have with me a very special guest. I have with me Dr. Philip Goff. He's a philosopher at the University of Durham, and if you you probably heard of this guy. He's all over the place. If you know anything about panpsychism, you've heard his name. He wrote the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy article on panpsychism. Uh, he's got some awesome books, including Galileo's Error, um, which is uh, Foundations for a New Science of Consciousness, Consciousness and Fundamental Reality. Like He's all over the place. He's awesome. Um, if you are into his dark materials, you may have seen an interview with him and the author. Uh, I'm really excited to get in deep on some of his uh, deeper thoughts in panpsychism and not just you know, what is panpsychism, though we will cover that. Before we jump in, however, uh, I want to thank everyone over on Patreon for making this podcast happen. You guys are awesome. If you have benefited personally from this podcast, if it's your top five, top 10 favorite, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. You can find the link in the description wherever you're getting this podcast at. And if you're watching on YouTube, leave me a comment. Uh, let me know what you think about panpsychism. Uh, perhaps Dr. Goff will come back and, and see your stuff. So be cool. Um, but but let me know. What do you think? Do you get it? Did did we explain it well? Um, what do you think of the theory of consciousness? Um, without further ado, though, let's just pull them in and get going on fundamental reality, consciousness, and uh, how we could possibly ground logic. Dr. Goff, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. Brilliant. Hi, Parker. Good to be here. We've been planning this for a while. That's Looking right. Chatting. Definitely, man. I'm I'm super excited about this. Um, before we jump in on, on panpsychism, I always like to ask my guests, like, how how did you become a philosopher? How did you get interested in it? How you're a professional philosopher, man? Like, how did that happen? God knows. Um, I've just always been obsessed with philosophy. I think hmm. a story I've told a few times. Apparently, my parents say said that uh, when I was four, I asked, "Why are we here?" But hmm. then. But I think we had just moved house at that point. So I think maybe it was, <laughs> I was just confused about the location. But um, yeah, I just, I've always been obsessed with, you know, how things hang together. I was raised Catholic. I remember asking the priest, you know, how the Big Bang fitted together with Adam and Eve, you know, sort of like yeah. these different things. How do they fit together? And um, consciousness has always been, you know, the big thing that's so hard to fit in. Uh, but there are other things, you know, free will, mm. value, mathematical objects, you know, these things that it seems almost on the face of it don't fit with our standard scientific story of the universe. And it's uh, it's not because I like mystery. It's because mm. I don't like mystery. <laughs> I want it all to fit together. And, um, and so, you know, I've always been driven by that, you know, um, things that don't kind of make sense does so there's an inconsistency like oh i love i love you to love colombo you know the 70s detective you sure. know and 
you know, he'd always he'd start off with what everyone else believed about the murder, and then he'd be like, "Something's bothering me." Something I can't really do that. Something's <laughs> bothering good. me. Sort of, it's not bad actually. Yeah. Uh, so you know, so he's this does this consciousness, this materialism about consciousness. Something's bothering me. Anyway, but yeah, I mean, in terms of actually doing it as a job, I think I've been very lucky because. I wanted to. I just wanted to drop out and be become a rock star. Really, I nearly <laughs> didn't go to university. And my brother said, "Well, you can just go and just do your band at university. You know, otherwise you'll have to get a job." Um, and so, yeah, and I just I don't know. I ended up um, just carrying on and um, getting eventually scraped, scraped through, scraped an academic job, and stuck around and. Yes, I, I can easily imagine actually a nearby possible world where <laughs> I didn't stick at it. I mean, I was incredibly lazy at high school, but anyway, I feel very lucky I've ended up. Yeah, where I am. Well, it sounds like uh, there's something, there's some kind of correlation between rock stars and consciousness. And I'm thinking about Chalmers, and and um, and now I hear about you too. So maybe that's a thing. Maybe the rock stars find their way to, to consciousness research. Yeah, <laughs> but he's not literally a, well i'm not literally a rock star neither he does the zombie blues doesn't he actually yeah so he does yeah, he does that. yeah yeah I've i i uh when i am at those conferences i do the ghost blues okay. which you can which is somewhere online me doing the ghost, ghost blues, blues. But, check um, that out. ghostly <laughs> blues well um so you you you're probably best known for for um panpsychism and you've done a, a, a ton of interviews conversations uh where you've defined that just one more time for it for us. Uh, just what what is panpsychism, and then we get to go in deep on on more of your your uh, papers and such. Yeah, panpsychism is the view that consciousness is a fundamental and ubiquitous feature of the physical universe. So, standardly at the at the fundamental level of physics, the, the basic building blocks have incredibly simple forms of experience. And then very complex experience at the human or animal biological level is somehow built up from very simple kinds of experience at, at that fundamental level. Mm. So it doesn't literally mean that everything is conscious. Uh, the basic idea is that the, the basic building blocks of reality are conscious, but maybe not every random combination of particles has its own consciousness. So it doesn't mean your socks are conscious. <laughs> it means the little smallest things your socks are made up of a conscious yeah that's great i love it well so going in on that then um why opt for panpsychism and put consciousness uh i want to get into like my priority monism and priority microphysicalism and stuff but um just staying where we're at right now why go in for panpsychism instead of pan protopsychism where they're like you know potentially uh conscious but you get enough of them together and then Maybe you get emergent uh, consciousness or something like that. Why? Why prefer pan yeah. to pan proto? Well, I'm actually very open to. I don't get asked that question very often. Mm. I'm actually very open to pan proto psychism. Mm. That so I. I mean, I standardly people think of the options are on the one hand materialism that we yeah. can just explain consciousness in the com- terms of conventional science, um, chemistry, physics. On the other hand, dualism, that it's um, consciousness is not physical. Maybe it's in the soul or in any case, it's somehow separate from the physical properties of the brain. Um, so I reject both of those options. And 
I, you know, I go for this middle way of panpsychism. But actually, the, the, another middle way position closely related is some kind of pan protopsychism where at the fundamental level that it's not there isn't consciousness, hmm. but there's some there's some mysterious nature that goes be that goes beyond the physical the properties we learn about in physical science. Um, but it's not consciousness. It's proto conscious. What does that mean? Well, it, in the right combinations, it's somehow gives rise to consciousness um someone like tom mcclelland who i'd like to have a, on my podcast at some point soon actually is um adopts the, the, this kind of view and um i mean i guess my problem with it is it's a possibility hmm. but my problem is it's sort of it's an essentially incomplete theory it's okay hmm. to, to call it proto-conscious is basically to say we don't know what it is but it makes consciousness but then you want to know well, what is it? What's the, what's a, give me a positive definition of it, and um, and a, a lot of people who go for this view adopt as Tom McClellan does, Mysterianism. They just say, well, we don't know. Maybe we can never know. You know, yeah. we 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 can't access the hidden nature of matter in that way. Yeah. Uh, so we'll never know. And um, so you know, that's a possibility, but. I guess just in terms of simplicity grounds, I think one thing we do know about the nature of matter, assuming rejecting, once we reject dualism, one thing we know about the nature of matter is that some of it has this consciousness involving nature, the, the, um, the at least part of the nature of my brain. I think as a panpsychist, I think when I reflect on my consciousness, I'm reflecting on the the inner nature of my brain, you know, these these colors and sounds and smells and tastes, that, that is the inner nature of my living brain. Hmm. Uh, so that that's what that's the, all we know directly about the nature of matter. And then we're speculating about the nature of matter outside of brains. It yeah. could be that it has some other nature, but why would you think that if you don't have reason? You know, the more simple, elegant, parsimonious view is that the nature of... The, the stuff outside of brains is continuous with the nature of stuff in brains and also having this consciousness involving nature. So I think panpsychism should be the sort of default position. But I don't go like my uh, my former PhD supervisor, Gaylon Strawson, yeah. who's a panpsychist, he, he's just got this strong intuition that you can't get consciousness from non-consciousness, so it must be there all along. That's what I, I was thinking. That. I don't you, see that. You don't go in for that. Okay. I don't see why there couldn't be some mysterious properties that somehow aren't consciousness but make consciousness in the right combinations i i don't think we have any positive understanding of such properties but um it'd be like i'd be like an empirical claim right like you'd need to see some evidence showing that that it's hard to know what yeah yes yes but i mean it's hard to know what evidence could point one way or the other as i often love to you know, want to point out consciousness is not publicly observable. So there are real limits, unfortunately, to what we can pin down with experiments. And so, hmm. you know, you can't, all you can get at empirically is the behavior of right. an electron. Um, I love you that you go there. I love yeah. that because so many others in philosophy of mind are, are, I don't know, they're pseudo behaviorists or, or something like that, where, where they, they really put a lot of pressure on the on the behavior. And I think I, I just I really appreciate you being like, no, the behavior is not it because we can't get at the I don't know if you'd say the qualitative nature or the qualia or the you know first person perspective. But 
Yeah, the behavior doesn't say it because something could pass the Turing test and not be conscious. Yeah, consciousness is is not is you know standardly in physical science, it's all about explaining observable behavior. You know, you've got a system that behaves in a certain way, and you you postulate a mechanism to explain its behavior ultimately, or you model its behavior in some kind of mathematical framework, or you ultimately postulate laws of physics. Um, but consciousness is something we know about in a very different way. Just right. We're just immediately aware of our feelings and experiences. It's a very different kind of datum. Yeah. And when I say, you know, Sarah is feeling, seeing red or feeling anxious, I'm not making a claim about her behavior. Mm. Um, I mean, I was debating Sean Carroll last week about, you know, he seemed to think, talk of consciousness is 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 a is a sort of way of talking about complicated behavior but i th- i don't think that's doesn't, at least doesn't seem to be what i'm saying when i I'm say with you yeah there is feeling anxious i think i'm talking about how she's feeling and it's it, it's just a very different kind of claim so you know the tools of physical science well, it depends what you're trying to do but trying to give that kind of reductive explanation like yeah. when you postulate a mechanism to explain behavior well what that just seems like really ill-fitting here um it's like you know analogy i give sometimes it's like saying telescopes are really good in astronomy so probably they're really good in pure math too you know it's just it's just a totally different expansion project yeah standardly in physical science we're trying to account for behavior Hmm. this is just not it's just a very different kind of explanatory project yeah well i think um I think you're probably right about panpsychism and panprotopsychism and, and going with the simpler option would be panpsychism. Um, unless you had like other, other, you know, desiderata or whatever you want to, you want to uh, fulfill, like avoiding the credulous stare, the, the panprotopsychist might have better, uh, might, might fare better in that case and say, well, look, I'm not saying everything's conscious or anything like that, but at some point, obviously. Um, but, but I do like, I, I do like what you're saying. And I think that's, both of them are so intriguing. I think um, of like William Hasker's uh, emergent dualism on pan proto psychism. I guess you could probably do it on pan psychism as well. Um, but then we get to mix in some dualism here. So it's like a halfway between the dualist and you. So that would be really fun too. Um, I want to get in on, on cosmos psychism um, uh, and universal consciousness and stuff like that. Cause these are some papers that you've written that I've really, really appreciated and loved and i haven't heard you talk a ton about them so um uh maybe let's get into um priority monism uh first to to, to find some terms here and then set Mm -hmm. up like your cosmopsychism um actually man i'm sorry let's go with constitutive panpsychism what what is that and how's that different than um emergent panpsychism so this is one big distinction among panpsychists um, this is David Chalmers' term, constitutive panpsychism. And, um, well, mainly it's a disagreement on the relationship between our consciousness at the biological level and consciousness at the level of fundamental physics. So, that I mean, that's a key question for a panpsychist. If you think there's consciousness at the level of fundamental physics, how does it relate to our consciousness and you know, most importantly, how does our consciousness emerge from consciousness at the fun- more fundamental level? I mean, that's ultimately what we're interested in, right? right. We don't want to. Um, 
if we can't explain our consciousness, it's kind of game over. <laughs> and there are broadly speaking two two options here: a, a sort of more reductive one and a less and a non-reductive one. So the I mean, the reductive one is the constitutive panpsychism. I sometimes call it weak emergentism, weak mm-hmm. emergentist panpsychism, as opposed to strong emergent. Anyway, constitutive view is is it, it is really, in some sense, all there are are conscious particles, you know. Mm-hmm. And okay, may, you know, my mind exists, but it's just what it's just a collection of conscious particles. It's just what you get when conscious particles are functioning in the right way or arranged in the right way so i like to give the analogy of um, a party think about the relationship between a party and the people dancing and drinking and having fun Hmm. in some sense that's just two different ways of describing the same thing it's not like there's the people dancing and drinking and then they produce this party that floats above their heads right you know all it is for there to be a party is for there to be people dancing and drinking. You know, the, the reality of the party wholly consists in the activities of the partiers. So similarly for the reductive panpsychist, um, you know, all it is for my, my me to have consciousness, for my brain to be conscious is for conscious particles to be arranged in the right way. So Luke Roloff's, I think, is the, is the best example person defending this kind of very reductive panpsychism so it's just like reductive materialism mm. except the particles are conscious uh but then the emergentist view or, or the strong emergentist view this problem with this word emergence philosophers use it in a different way to scientists right. yeah. scientists tend to use it for this more reductive thing whereas philosophers tend to use it for a more anti-reductive thing so because we so cause like, philosophers use supervene right that's the more reductive version supervenience well supervenience used to be more a more popular term than it is yeah and the reason it's not referred to much is it's 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 really just a what we call a merely modal notion so modal means to do with possibility and necessity so to say it supervenes is roughly to say that there's a necessary connection that that okay. so to say everything supervenes on the physical is to say the physical facts necessitate everything else and and that's fine. People still talk about supervenience, but I guess w- what people move to thinking is that's not really explaining very much. We we want to say, well, why is it necessitating? Is there a sort of reduction? Is there an identity? And so people tend to talk yeah. about grounding now yeah, um, as, as a sort of more <clears throat> explicitly explanatory relationship, not just saying there's some necessary connection. Okay. Um, so yeah so grounding i guess would you think of as the more constitutive view but then strong emergence or or sorry, i'm throwing around lots of terms here let's just stick with emergence and yeah. constitutive so sure. constitutive is the more reductive one like the party and the party is emergence is that le- the more anti-reductive one were were in in some sense particle consciousness produces our consciousness but our consciousness is something radically new. Mm. Um, so maybe there's laws of new fundamental laws of nature that bridge the gap. Yeah. Or maybe there's just basic combinatorial powers particles have that kick in when they combine in a certain way. But either way, when, when you know, a human conscious mind emerges, it's, it's something radically new. There's kind of new forms of consciousness here. Um, I mean, it might not be just at the human level. It might be, you know, combination begins at cells, maybe. And so cell, the consciousness of a cell is sort of 
something radically new and then the consciousness of um a slightly bigger organic unit anyway um but i mean and and then well to finish off i guess my i i i would go for probably some kind of middle way position um mm. and i've explored my i've got a paper on my website how exactly does panpsychism explain consciousness but i think there are various kind of middle way positions i, I i'm inclined to think um maybe a more a more reductive position about sensory consciousness but when it comes to something i'm talking about a lot in my new book the consciousness that's involved in thought or understanding i think it's harder to give a reductive story about that so yeah so i'm open to a sort of hybrid of the two okay yeah that's really helpful um it's helpful and it's confusing so if i think of um like the categories of priority microphysicalism and priority monism uh, you know, Schaffer's language. Uh, he's been on the podcast, so we can we can talk about this freely. If someone has uh, some questions, they can go back and watch that one. Um, <clears throat> do you do you go in for for one over the other, or do you have like a a middle way would seem like a priority like uh, macro physicalism or something like that? But um, maybe I'm just totally mixing categories here, and and you wouldn't say that. But when it when it comes to priority micro and and um, monism, do you do you side with one of those, or do you find a middle way there too? So I think these are these are two different distinctions okay. that can be mixed and matched in different ways. Sure. So you can have, I mean, it's, yeah. So you could have a a reductionist priority monism. I can, let's just use constitutive and emergence. Sorry, yeah. I, I'm muddy in the water by bringing in new terms. You could have a constitutive priority monism, and you can have an emergentist priority monism. You okay. can have a constitutive micropsychism and an emergentist micropsychism. Um, I I I I I do tend to go for the cosmopsychism version. I I often talk about panpsychism in the kind of particle-based version of it. Yeah. But actually I do tend to go for the cosmopsychist version. Um because of one particular challenge um in in this area which is how you get something with the structure of my consciousness out of something of the structure of physics yeah and um you know if we're starting off with lots of little pinpricks of consciousness like lots of little conscious particles and you stick them all together it looks like you're just going to have some really complicated aggregate of trillions and trillions and you know countless how many electrons are there in my head how many fundamental particles it looks like that doesn't match the structure of my experience whereas well the view I prefer and closer to the kind of view many theoretical physicists like is a sort of more field ontology rather than a particle ontology where the fundamental building blocks of reality are not particles, but universe wide fields. Yeah. And then particles are sort of ex- local excitations in those fields. So on that view, you know, you, the fundamental forms of consciousness are already these unified structured things and um and then our consciousness kind of emerges from that structure so rather than like lots of little things sticking them together you start with a complicated unified consciousness and human consciousness kind of fragments out of that yeah um so and again i would have a sort of a little bit of a so i would have a priority monist kind of panpsychism mm-hmm. where the fundamental things are these universe-wide forms of consciousness and then a, a, a sort of mixture of emergence and constitutive panpsychism mm. 
to some extent, my consciousness is just inherited from the consciousness of these fundamental fields in physics. But then some aspects of my consciousness, like my thought and my conceptual understanding, that they seem to me radically new forms of conscious experience. And so, yeah. um, and I think when they emerge, they're probably gonna gonna change things a bit. They're probably gonna change how my brain functions because there are these kind of new forms of consciousness that pop up. Yeah, man, that's really fascinating. So, in in one sense, there's like this hard problem, hard problem of consciousness. Like, how do we get, uh, how do we get phenomenal facts from physical facts? And you go, well, they're there at the bottom. So we go in for panpsychism because you're not going to get it somewhere. You don't have to find a sororities uh, point or anything like that. And then you say, well, how do how do we get consciousness, single unified consciousness, maybe, um, from all these little fundamental BBs? And you go, well, I'll just put it at at the grand scale. Put it, go with go with fields. And so you go you go all the way down when it comes to a hard problem. And maybe to to combat the combination problem, you go all the way up. And you say, no, we're we're starting up here. And and it even though it at first it seems really counterintuitive to to say these kind of things. Uh, it does look like a really simple answer to say, look, like that just good luck doing it any other way, right? Like, is that, do you think that's kind of uh, a motivation for you? Yeah, Simplicity. so the, the cosmopsychism is to address one specific aspect of the combination problem. If you don't, Charm, David Chalmers' paper on the combination problem distinguishes three aspects, mm. uh, one to do with, subjects want to do with structure and want to do with qualities so the cosmos psychism is really about structure how does something with the structure of my conscious mind arise ultimately from something of the structure of physics yeah so yeah um but yeah so why go for this um i mean what you what, what you're always trying to do is go for the simplest theory that can account for the data right but for me the data is not just i think most people think what are the what's the data for science it's just observation experiments but to my mind that's not all the data there's also the reality of experience so we have to formulate the simplest theory that can account for both and i think this is the simplest theory that can account for both i mean to put it put it broad broadly speaking i think you know there are three options you start with physics and try and get consciousness out. Yeah. You start with consciousness, try and get physics out. <laughs> yeah. Or you take both matter and consciousness as fundamental. That's the dualist view. So I guess I think the first option just is incoherent. You can't get consciousness out of physics. The dualist option is a possibility, but it's not very elegant, not very parsimonious. Mm. So the option of getting physics and everything else out of consciousness looks to be it has the simplicity of materialism and the coherence of dualism so and and then but then you know and then you get into the as we have been doing get into the technical questions or which which of these versions works out and which doesn't so i think i think i find the totally reductionist panpsychist picture that luke roloffs goes for a bit implausible mm. because of for example because of I find thought experience seems seems to be something radically new, um, and I think the cosmopsychist version works better for 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 getting the structure. Um, so that's the the particular yeah version of panpsychism I go for. 
Yeah. Um, we're, I'm trying to think how to, how to, it's so good. I, I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for, for, for uh, summing that all up. I'm, no I want to get in, I want to get into like subjects and stuff and, and cosmopsychism. Um, you have this, this great paper to the universe design itself. Um, and in there you, you're, it's, I don't think you're saying like, this is the theory, but you're saying it like, could, could it, could happen. Let me try to solve this. Let me, let me see if we can do this. And you're trying to make sense of cosmological fine tuning and saying like the universe is um, designed itself. And you say there's just two modifications you need to make. The universe has to be an agent, uh, a conscious subject that responds to reasons has, you know, reasons, responsiveness, and it has to be able to represent the future um, in order to like plan ahead and, and design these cosmological laws. Um, it's really, really fascinating. I think it's something that theists uh, haven't, haven't thought through. And I was put on to this by uh, my professor, Brandon Rickabaugh, um, because theists and atheists are always going back and forth, but there's a middle way and there's, and this is really fascinating and you're one of the proponents here. So when it comes to agentive cosmopsychism, cosmopsychism where there's the universe, the cosmos is a conscious agent. How do we make sense of Chalmers, um, uh, subject, uh, condition in, in the combination problem? Is that subject summing? Is that, is that his terminology? Yeah. So you've got, um, different aspects as i say of of, of the combination problem mm-hmm. one of them we've been discussing is how, how you get structure so yeah. it's all about it's all about the connection between biological consciousness and consciousness at the level of physics how do we understand the relationship one is how do we get the structure of my consciousness from the structure at the level of physics but another is just how do you get another subject so subject is just a, kind of semi-technical term for something that has consciousness right and um a conscious mind the subject seems to be something deeply unified um you know i if you think of all my i loving there's lots of different aspects to my experience right now the colors the sounds the feels but they're not just sitting in isolation they're sort of experienced together yeah. in a sort of deeply unified way how do you get that deeply unified subject out of sticking lots of little subjects together? <laughs> or if you're going cosmopsychist, if you're starting off with a deeply unified universe mind, right? How do lesser minds fragment away from that? Mm. Um, well, again, I, yeah, I mean, this is another reason why I take. I, I think the pure reductionist option is pretty implausible yeah. because I do think there's something irreducible about a, a conscious subject. So, so in some sense, I, 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 I just, I think um, I would take a strong emergentist view that when a new subject emerges from the universe and it's not going to be just at the level of humans, presumably. Sure. Um, in some sense, there is a radical addition. There is an addition to reality. Um, but that doesn't mean all of its consciousness is new. So that's I think that this is what people oh, yeah. Yeah. people contrast these two ideas. So this is my paper. Um, how exactly does panpsychism explain consciousness? And people think it's it's either co- human subjects are totally new and all their consciousness is totally new, mm. or it's all reductive. But I, I would rather say no. Maybe the subject is new, but the consciousness that, as it were, fills that subject is old so so if you think of a subject as like a glass bottle or something 
Yeah. And then it's filled with consciousness from um, that's already there at the level of fundamental physics. And then maybe there's a sprinkling of new consciousness on the top, which is the kind of conceptual understanding. Yeah, that's basically my picture. That So my, let's say my mind emerges maybe early on in, you know, sometime in my mother's womb. Yeah. Uh, so there's some, some radically new subject, but it's filled with consciousness that was uh, already there, streams of consciousness at the level of fundamental physics. Mm-hmm. And then the baby's born, and as it grows, it, it as it comes to understand the world, sort of new uh, conceptual experience emerges on top of the the old forms of experience. That's kind of the view I take. But anyway, I, th- that was only part of your question. So this middle way between God and atheism. Yeah, I mean, I hate all the, I hate dichotomies. People get stuck in these dichotomies right. of you know U.S. capitalism or Soviet communism, <laughs> you know uh, God or Dawkins, yeah. materialism or Jew. You know whose side are you on? Um, <laughs> you, you know right. you, you get put on. You can hear people trying to put you on the other side. I think you know when you talk, are you on my side or you on the other side. Hmm. Um, and yeah so i mean like my new book is much more on this it's exploring positions between god and atheism the cosmopsychist view is one of them yeah. i explore also um uh, sort of non-standard designers limited god evil god indifferent god the simulation hypothesis yeah um uh, and also natural teleology that view thomas nagel as defended in his book mind and cosmos that maybe they're just laws of nature with purposes built into them but in any way i just i think the fine tuning is just uncontroversial pretty uncontroversial physics and i think everyone's in denial about it because for over 100 years there wasn't anything i mean more than that if you're thinking of of science in general um if you just think of physics in particular, there, there wasn't any evidence of God or teleology mm. or purpose. And then people just got used to the idea. That's what, you know, science has ruled all that out. Yeah, right. right. And then the evidence changes <clears throat> and people can't handle it. And we're still in a period of time, I think, when people are just refusing to accept it. You know, the the great economist Keynes, someone said to him once, you didn't used to think that. And he said, well, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? <laughs> and... Um, you just triggered all of my libertarian uh, listeners by mentioning Keynes, but that's okay, <laughs> folks. We're not talking about Oh, that. if you want to be triggered, libertarian listeners, uh, <laughs> Google my article, No Taxation Isn't Theft. Oh, no. Um, and get annoyed. That's oh, no. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, well, there's so many things there that were so good, and, and maybe you haven't finished thought, so, so uh, feel free. But and one thing, you, you did mention simulation hypothesis in there, and I think that's so cool because um not because i think the simulation hypothesis is awesome or anything like that because that's what a lot of public uh thinkers and abstract thinkers who aren't philosophers talk about i work on a college campus i work uh uh i I talk with athletes every day and talk about god and they always go what if we're living in a simulation hypothesis or what if we're living in a computer simulation and i always bring that up to my philosopher friends and Many of them are like, that old thing, isn't that just brain in a vat again? And it's like, man, whatever it is, they're talking about it. Here's our chance to drag in some more abstract thinkers into, into philosophy. And so I, I love what you do. I love that you take those kind of things. And I love that you uh, are fighting against the dichotomy stuff. It's really fun. 
No, absolutely. I mean, the simulation hypothesis, it's not, it's not just a skeptical thing. There's a very interesting right. argument. Um, oh, God, what's his name? My mind's gone blank. Bostrom. Bostrom, of course, yeah. Nick Bostrom. Nick Bostrom, I wish, before I went on Joe Rogan's podcast, I wish I'd watched what I think is perhaps the, the only other interview he's done with a philosopher, which is Nick Bostrom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was all about, you know, Bostrom trying to explain the argument uh, and Joe Rogan sort of not getting it. And I That's think funny, I, would have, I would have not tried, I would have rethought my strategy for getting the hard problem of consciousness across to Joe Rogan if I'd yeah. watched that. But anyway, you live and learn. Yeah. Um, but yeah, look, there's, you know, there's an, there's an important argument here. It's, 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 it's not just skepticism. It's, If you if you have good reason to think there will one day be many simulations, then it starts to look improbable that that we are the 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 few who are um, you know one of the few who are actually physical rather than simulated. I mean, my problem with it is I don't think a simulation would be conscious. Yeah, but um, well, wait, that's that's really fascinating. So uh, that's what my dualist friends usually say, Um, and and. yeah, that they all, you know, I, I think uh, I think it's committed to functionalism, and I think functionalism's false. But you know, what if what if it was uh, pan protopsychism? Uh, you know, you just you simulate the structure. Mm, is that still functionalism? Uh, if you simulate the structure of consciousness, or digital, wouldn't did wouldn't zeros and ones and uh, algorithms on on a certain panpsychist view? Couldn't they still have a degree of consciousness? Such that you put them together, you could still get that higher order consciousness out. Yeah, it can, I mean, it could be, and I mean, lots of panpsychists disagree with me on this, and certainly David okay. Chalmers does. But it, it just seems to me, if as a panpsychist you think consciousness is kind of the stuff of matter, yeah, then it's weird to think that's going to go with software rather than hardware. You know, if consciousness yeah. is the stuff of matter, that's hardware. Yeah, especially look if you've got a kind of strong emergentist partially strong emergent disposition where you, yeah. you you really need these new subjects these new containers emerging to get consciousness at the higher level and i just it just seems unlikely to me that um you know the signals for those new containers to emerge would be to do kind of computation and software and mm. um i mean david chalmers has got an in- intriguing argument for the kind of functionalism that you would need for the simulation hypothesis we discussed on my podcast and yeah. my point is i think it, it assumes the falsity of strong emergentism mm. and um, assumes a very reductive constitutive panpsych constitutive panpsychist view or constitutive view um and actually, I, I suggested to Chalmers you could sort of run it. I think I talk about this in my new book as well. You could run the argument in the other way, the other direction, right? You could start from the the thesis that um, a simulation wouldn't be conscious and then get a strong emergentist conclusion if the rest of the reasoning is sound. Mm. Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah, anyway, but... Um, but you might, I mean, you might go for the simulation hypothesis, not not on those grounds, but because, yeah, for the fine tuning, you know, there's, yeah, it looks like, you know, it's just incredibly crazy odds that, that, that the numbers for life would be there by chance. You know, I think it's because it's a bit abstract. We, um, you know, it's easy for us to ignore it, but 
you know, it it is kind of crazy odds. But if you if you have problems with standard theism, as I do, for the problem of evil, yeah, then um, you you might look to alternative design hypotheses, and and the um, simulation hypothesis is one of them. Yeah, I, I always you you talk a lot about simplicity um, when I listen to you and when I read your stuff, and and it's it's huge. And I think simulation hypothesis isn't as simple as base reality hypothesis right there's an extra step there but if you have if you're if you're driven by um uh f- fundamental fine tuning stuff then you go yeah okay there's a there's a designer but you can unless you're saying the simulation hype uh the simulator is a necessary being then you still need an explanation for the the simulator you know like why wh- what's the deal with yeah. them and you you could go in and say well hey maybe we're in a simulation hypothesis maybe we're in a simulation but um, we got a gent of uh, cosmopsychism behind that, and that that designed fundamental uh, fine tuning laws. Yeah, I mean, one thing the simulation simulation hypothesis person might say is, well, maybe the simulator's universe isn't fine tuned. So, yeah. uh, how could they make the simulation though if it's not, you know, if there's no standard laws and things pop in and out of existence? uh no 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 i mean it's i'm I'm saying it's it's not there's a difference between the universe being life conducive yeah, and yeah, being yeah. fine-tuned like it i think bef- you know 50 years ago we we knew the universe was life conducive okay but we didn't think that you'd need very specific numbers to get a life conducive okay. universe that's a good point yeah yeah so yeah. i mean that's that's the surprising discovery of fine-tuning that you it's it, it's balanced on a knife edge it could. So there, I, I think there are, you know, there are possible universes that are life conducive, but the laws of physics aren't fine tuned because there's loads of ways you can get life. But it so happens that the kind of universe we are in, um, with the, you, you could, you need very precise numbers to get life. So it could be that in the simulator's universe, um. It's life conducive, but it's but it's not fine tuned, and so it's there's, there's no motivation to think it was designed. Maybe they they left fine tuning in their universe as a sort of signature or something. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you could bring in the cosmological argument there. Yeah. But then that's more, you know, that's a different argument. Someone right. might buy the fine tuning, not buy the cosmological argument. But you know, maybe. maybe you um, but yeah, and it's certainly, as you say, another option is. Agent of cosmopsychism. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. I mean, it's still a. It's still a fairly big ontological cost, as you say. The um, this whole meta universe. <laughs> uh, but maybe no. There's nothing supernatural. It's just the universe is conscious, and it kind of designed itself. Uh, yeah. So in a way, that's. Uh, well, I try to argue it's actually an incredibly parsimonious hypothesis. Yeah. It sounds really extravagant, but. Um, I yeah. might write a paper, actually. You know, you're interested in philosophy of religion. I might write a paper that, you know, Swinburne's argument for God is um, on simplicity grounds. And I might try to say, if you buy all that, you should go one step further and identify God with the universe. Yeah, go. yeah. Well, and, and some, some I guarantee some listeners right now have already thought about this and they thought about um, panentheism. And, and you have this, this great line in... Uh, I think it's in your universal consciousness paper where you say this isn't panentheism. This is Theo and panism because uh, pan panentheism right. is there's, there's God outside of the universe and then the universe exists in God, but, but God is, there's more to God than there is to the universe. You're saying there's not more to God than the universe. 
theopanism. God is in the universe, but he's not. There's no part of him that's outside. Oh yeah, I'd forgotten about that. It's quite good, isn't it's it? It's a great line. Um, well, yeah, I like flash but, I mean, stuff, so I I mean the, the important thing for me is the designer. Whether they're supernatural, I'm open to a supernatural designer. Uh, probably think you know, it, it shouldn't be the Omni probably not the ideal on on parsimony grounds. But hmm. the more important thing is whether the designer is supernatural or not. They're not all. They, they can't be all. They can't have all the omni characteristics because of because evil. of because of evil for me. Yeah. That's that would be. Um, I know you don't like uh, skeptical theism. There, I saw some tweets from you on that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm talking about this again in plugging my new book a lot tonight. But uh, yes, that's great. Yes, skeptical yeah. theism. It's get. Uh, do you want to talk about that or? No, uh, I'm just just uh, just I'm excited for your for your new book, and maybe I can coax you into coming back on to talk about it when it comes out because uh, mm. that's like right up my audience's uh, alley and my alley as well. Um, all all the stuff you've been working on, and um, really excited for it. And I'm glad that you are you've you've considered it. I'm glad that you thought through, and I think you have, you have arguments against skeptical theism in your book. Yeah, I don't know how original they are. Kind of, sure. I mean, I guess I think. Um, oh. <sighs> to think what they are now um i guess i just think all, all we can ever do is, is do the best we can with the evidence we have and that's the rational thing to do i've got a nice analogy actually mm. if um you know we now know don't we or, or believe that a huge percentage of the the, the the matter in the universe is uh dark matter yeah is it 90 percent or something crazy like that oh, i can't remember something now. i don't i never know because i i watch uh uh his dark materials and i don't know if they're embellishing <laughs> or not and right so yeah when i talked to philip pullman the author of that he was saying he was inspired by dark matter and he was saying i hope they don't discover what this yeah. is before yeah. this book comes out that. That awesome. um but you know it could be if we if we sort of knew the nature of dark matter it could have implications not just for our theory of dark matter but for our theory of matter we know about it might sort of change shift what what is a plausible theory of that yeah but we don't hold off theorizing about the matter we do know about on that basis we just do the best with what we can that's yeah. all we ever do yeah. so like skeptical theorists want to say well look there could be all of these moral considerations that god knows about that we don't um but i think well we just do the best what we always do the best of what we can and i think yeah in terms of the moral considerations we do know about and our best minds are reflected upon, it looks really implausible that it, that it would, well, it, it looks to my, here's how I would put the problem of evil. I think it would be immoral for an all powerful being to create this universe. Hmm. I think that's a really, it's not, I don't infallibly know that, sure. but I think there's, there's a lot of justification behind that. G given what you've experienced, given, yeah, yeah. Given what we know, in the way we normally form ethical views, like you know, slavery is bad or whatever, mm. I think that's a pretty solid moral intuition that it it would be immoral for an all powerful being to create the universe, yeah, a universe like this. Well, I always 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 wonder if it's like an internal versus external critique. Like if you're if if it's from if it's posed as an argument against a theist's view, the theist has a lot of different tools and a lot of different arguments and evidence that they say look i'm coming from uh this perspective and uh i have reasons to think that god has a morally sufficient reason whereas if a theist is coming to a, a agnostic or atheist or non-theist of some stripe and says look you should believe 
uh, even though you have this evidence of evil, you should believe because of skeptical theism, they're going to have their evidence and say, well, look, that's just not, yeah, it's not the same for me. I don't have the same, I would say worldview. I know that that term is kind of loaded now and it means a bunch of different things, but we're working with different conceptual schemas or something like that. Yeah, no, I think that's right, Parker. I think that's right. I, to my mind, I just can't, I don't think there's there's much, if any, mod- reason to take to take seriously that God is all-powerful, for example. Mm. I think there's fine-tuning, gives you reason to take seriously a designer or some kind of teleology. I'm, as I say, yeah. I'm open to impersonal teleological <laughs> laws. Sure. Um, but I, do, I, I, actually, I actually agree with Richard Swinburne that maybe there's some kind of simplicity gra- construct. Um, that maybe in some sense the omni god is the default position because it's the most simple. Yeah. But those kind of simplicity considerations are pretty easily overwhelmed by evidence. So I really don't see much evidence. And so, you know, if I thought if I thought the ontological argument worked, then yeah, I'd have a serious motivation for trying to get skeptical theism to work or trying yeah, yeah. to square the circle. But I just don't see a motivation for going there. And so, you know, I just see no motivation not to not take evil at face value um but you know i mean this is i i think there are just terms i mean there are forms of christianity for example i was surprised to discover that are um have a god of limited power for example and yeah. not in touch so um right. so this is not necessarily inconsistent with uh these traditional uh forms of theism yeah but, yeah well, I think I think, and you make a good point about simplicity. Like, there's a inherent ceteris uh, paribus, or however you say it, uh, clause in simplicity claims. You have you all things yeah. being equal. You know, can, can, uh, all, if two theories both make sense of the same phenomena, then the simpler wins. But but you know, you might say, hey, look, I don't think it makes sense of evil in the same way. And so, even though it might be simpler, it's it's not explaining all the data, including evil. Yeah. So. I mean, I like Richard Swinburne's analogy of the speed of light. If um, apparently, I only know this off his authority. Um, sure. We used to think the speed of light was infinite before we had empirical evidence of the contrary. But as soon as we get empirical evidence of the contrary, we don't say, "Oh, is there any way we can keep it infinite?" You know, you just you, know, <laughs> you go for the, you, you, the the key thing is the data. You yeah. go for the simplest for theory that's compatible with the data so yeah so i i agree with richard swinburne you know in some sense if you didn't have evidence to the contrary you'd assume the designer was all powerful but we have evidence to the contrary thing i i put this to richard swinburne uh, um the british philosophy of religion annual conference and he said he now thinks like evil doesn't count against god at all which is not what he says in his book the existence of god but wow, wow that's wild yeah, I'm looking to get him on next month, so we'll see. Maybe we can ask him about that. Um, He's a very interesting thinker, I think. Seriously, you know, bringing all the Bayesian stuff into philosophy, yeah. religion, I think is. Man, you're you're such a you're such a cool guy. I love the way you think. You're like pulling stuff from all all over the place. It doesn't seem like you have maybe you have biases. I don't know, but it doesn't seem like you have like an overarching bias that keeps you from reading certain people or thinking a certain way. And really appreciate that, man. This this, oh, is, this is awesome. That's very kind of you to say so. Yeah, well, I do. I just really do want the want the truth. You know, yeah. I don't really, I, I don't really, um, I, I just, it does annoy me the, di- the dichotomies and yeah. the, um, you know, I mean, I hate, you know, I hate, I hate certain th- things both sides hate, you know, I hate, oh, I don't, anyway, I <laughs> yeah, hate yeah. <laughs> ethical views of, I mean, what really winds up about kind of William Lane Craig or something, you know, is, is, is the ethics and hmm. I'm, I'm hooked on his podcast, but it, you know, you know, in, 
it never talks about poverty poverty or you know mm. liberation or um and you know i'd say okay it's a philosophy podcast yeah but he does talk or about politics, you know gay yeah. marriage and abortion and violence in movies mm. <laughs> it's got bloody violence in movies but you know I, so you know i i think you know uh, uh, on most ethical issues i'm probably pretty solidly on the secular side i'd say yeah. but i don't know i just on the fine tuning for example i just think the secular side is just wildly in denial i mean even if you i've uh, i've got a, arguments against the multiverse I, you know i think there's a logic there's a an identifiable fallacy in the inference from fine tuning to multiverse which yeah. is something i was persuaded of i used to just think the multiverse was, was totally a possibility but uh, even if you do think that you know it's still incredibly speculative physics and so i think you, that really everyone ought to because of the fine tuning everyone ought yeah. to give some credence to a design hypothesis yeah and the only reason they don't is just cultural reasons which in some sense is really cool so um, i am a theist and um you could i we could think about your project um cosmopsychism especially like agent of cosmopsychism in a couple of different ways we could think well look he's stealing he's stealing people from the faith he's stealing people from theism because he's the middle ground people are on their way over to theism because of cosmological uh uh you know fine-tuning stuff and they stop at his uh you know they stop with him you could also look at it and say look um Maybe they do have a bias uh, against any kind of theism, so they don't even want to look at any kind of fine-tuning stuff. But, you know, Goff gave them uh, a way a way out of that, a way to think about it more deeply. And maybe we can convince some people. or Maybe we could at least have the conversation now because it's not as threatening. It's not, uh, I have to go to church tomorrow because I agreed that there is fine-tuning. Yeah, yeah. I guess it it could it could it could work out in your favor. <laughs> <laughs> well, just um, have more conversations, you know. Like that's that's even better. Yeah, I think yeah. people being more open to different ideas that they would not be open to because of non-rational reasons, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. I want to. Um, I don't know. I've been trying to get this book published as well. Actually, I think um, one publisher rejected it. Just wanted wanted to put it in the sort of religious and spirituality category and. Mm. It's difficult. It is. It is. It is. It is so difficult. And um, but you know, things do change quick. Change quickly. You know, you think the yeah. consciousness used to be a totally taboo topic. Yeah. And now it's taken seriously as this hard problem. And yeah. But then actually, my colleague Peter West, who's a historian of philosophy, and um, he had this great quote from a uh, 1937 Susan Stebbing, I think it was saying. <laughs> Of course, all physicists believe idealism. <laughs> I am yet to find a wow. physicist who isn't an idealist. Wow, <laughs> remarkable, isn't it? So, yeah. You know, idea. You know, it's just uh, the the materialist orthodoxy sort of post-war. I don't know. I think something happened in the Second World War or something. Where, uh, <laughs> uh, it could be. So you know, humans always think they're at the end of history, and ever you know, and and it gets into your identity. You know, people laugh at you know around the time of copernicus people couldn't handle the evidence that the earth wasn't in the center of the universe and we think oh stupid people stuck yeah. in the religious ideology but you know i just think every generation absorbs the ideology and hmm. people laugh at them if they you know don't fit in with it and yeah um yeah of course there are some good reasons for some taking cautiously being cautious about deviations you know we want to yeah. be 
but yeah, thinking, thinking flat earth or something. Um, uh, leave us, leave us comment if you're a flat earther here. Um, <laughs> well, uh, Dr. Yeah. Goff, I, so, so we got evil on the table. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading your, your new book and maybe we could, we could talk evil more or, or skeptical theism or something like that. But I want to talk about logic because, uh, this really, yeah. it's really an amazing philosopher that I've read said that, uh, you know, uh, the metaphysician ought to, uh, be able to, uh, posit a entity um, that can make sense of consciousness, but this philosopher also said that you have to. Um, the metaphysician is uh, obliged to also posit an entity that can make sense of logic, and so I'm wondering about uh, agentive cosmopsychism uh, for the for the audience. That was Dr. Goff who said that. Um, how does agentive cosmopsychism make sense of like the laws of logic, which? I'm, they're not presupposed, but maybe they're presupposed that the laws of logic seem like they need to be there already in order for the cosmo psychist agent to design the universe itself, right? Like A has to be A in order for uh, the universe to design itself, right? Yeah. So I think, God, this was a long time ago I wrote this paper. Someone's written a response to it that I haven't got around to reading yet. Um, Andrew Thomas. Um Yes, yeah, so I think actually when this video, I, I was so so look, let's start with the constraint. Yeah, I think <clears throat> you know I think we're going for a period of history where we just focus on what, what's the data for theorizing about reality. We just focus on empirical data. Mm. I think there's other things. I think consciousness is another thing, but also yeah. um, necessary truths. We, yeah. You know, we, we know a lot of necessary truths. So in this paper, I take the law of non-contradiction as the necessary truth. So it's not entirely unquestioned. But there will, even for um, log logicians who reject the law of non-contradiction, there's going to be some foundational logical truths that right. I would say are necessary or mathematical truths. And in my view, you know, if something's true, there must be something in reality that makes it true, right? Tr truth, in some sense, is a correspondence between thought and language and reality, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, if, you, if you've got a truth without something making it true, you've just got a sentence, really. You know, if a sentence to be true, there must be, it must hmm. mirror reality in some sense. So this constraint is, you know, we have to say, well, just take the law of non-contradiction. You know, what is it that makes that true? Um so the view I explored, it was more in a sort of um, kind of uh, Hindu mysticism type conception of God, I think, of yeah. sort of universal consciousness. So the thought was, I talk a little about this a little bit in Galileo's era as well. So this kind of view, philosopher I really like, Miri al-Bahari, who defends the kind of Advaita Vedanta mysticism yeah. in, the, in the tradition of analytic philosophy. So this very rigorous, logical awesome. form of argumentation. She's a great philosopher. Um, but anyway, in some sense, the view is that consciousness, there is at the core of consciousness, an element that is universal, which we can call universal consciousness. So, so your mind and my mind are not on this view are not entirely distinct. Um, because at the core of my mind is something, namely universal consciousness which is one and the same, literally the same thing as what is present at the core of your mind. Right. Um, but we have different phenomenal properties, which makes us Yeah, different. so we think of it like, yeah, there's something at the core that's the same and then built upon that foundation, there's 
that the contingent aspects of each conscious mind that differentiates yours from mine. Um, so my proposal was maybe, you know, it sounds like a possible view of the, um, the nature of consciousness that Miri thinks is um, met experienced meditators. It's revealed to be true to them. Oh, yeah. uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but we need something that grounds the law of non-contradiction. But as you say, um, I mean, everything respects the law of non-contradiction. So it has to be something that it's in some sense everywhere and part of everything and there before time began and essentially fills everything. Yeah. So this universal consciousness business looked like one possible candidate. So maybe um, this universal consciousness is, 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 is essentially such that it exists necessarily and it partially constitutes every possible entity. And it's essentially such that it respects the law of non-contradiction and and imparts that to everything it partially constitutes. So there you've got something, a candidate for what could make true the law of non-contradiction. Some, yeah. yeah, I think you said that its nature resists being, um, I'm not using the right language, but it, it like resists being actuated or, or uh, it resists contrary states of affairs. Like it, it universal consciousness isn't... Uh, molded or instantiated into like contrary states affairs so therefore law of non-contradiction yeah yeah that sounds a better way of putting it yeah so i mean look i think this needs explaining it's people it's so obvious that people don't think it needs explaining that like you can't get contradictory states of affairs that it can't be raining and not raining at the same hmm. time the same place I mean, it's hard to get a contradiction. You can't have a square circle, but yeah, no, you sure. can't. What what makes that true? That's a, mm. and you know, people used to have like the logical positivists used to have these kind of conventional truths, though it's linguistic convention. I think yeah. that's very unpopular view now. Yeah, I think Quine basically dispensed with that. It's very unpopular view. Um, so if these are substantive truths, what makes them true? There must be something that makes them true. So that's the thought that maybe it's it's this universal consciousness that resists. Um, contradiction sort of inherently resists contradiction. I mean, actually, I've been thinking more recently. I mean, it, I mean, maybe it could be just being itself. Um, mm. is has a nature that resists contradiction. I mean, actually, the view I've been thinking more recently is um a kind of Aristotelian Platonism that. Sorry, I'm going off on all sorts of tendency, but no, this is um, awesome. My, my, this is like right up my my uh, audience uh, and my alley. So this is perfect. So the the problem is something I've been thinking for a long time. That the, the problem with the problem with Platonism is how the hell do you know about the things, the forms? But the problem with Aristotelianism, so Aristotle brought the forms down to earth, right. brought Plato's forms down to earth. You got that famous picture of. Plato pointing up and Aristotle yeah. pointing down. But Aristotle takes them to be contingent. Yeah. And so, but these are necessary truths. I mean, I think necessary truths have to be made true by something that exists necessarily. Otherwise, it'd be a possible world in which they weren't true. Right. So my thought is, well, maybe these can be necessary entities, but which are literally consti partly constitute the physical world. So they're not in Platonic heaven. So, um, so maybe you know being itself 
exists necessarily hmm. or or hmm. or the let, let, let's put it that this, this sounds a bit heideggerian or something the form <laughs> of a, the form of a state of affairs right so uh it's a little bit better than being yeah it does the form, the form of a state of affairs hmm. exists necessarily so like if there was no if there was nothing contingent the form of the state of affairs would still would still exist necessarily but it's instantiated and it's instantiated in the way aristotle thought so any state of affairs that form is literally in in the state of affairs it's literally physically present um in the way aristotle thought you know aristotle thought that like the universal of white of blueness is literally present here right but then he thought if all the blue things disappear, blueness would disappear. Why? Yeah. Why do we have to think that? Maybe blueness is really here and really everywhere where there's something blue. But when all the blue things go, blueness still exists. So, where, so that's the... Yeah, yeah where, where is that? I guess, is that... Are you bringing in Plato's, Plato's heaven still? Like Plato's, like, you know, the third realm or whatever? Because if you blew up, if you took all of the blue things, put them in the blue museum, painted the museum blue and then exploded it, there's no more blue, but you, but obviously that's crazy. Like that seems nuts unless, unless you're Armstrong or someone, but you know, it seems nuts. So we want to say, yes, there's still blue, but where is that blue? Cause all the instantiations of it are destroyed. Is there a third, you know, is there a platonic realm where blueness exists? Well, because maybe What it, what it is for blueness to be instantiated is for it to partly constitute a physical contingent state of affairs. Mm. But um, think about Jesus, okay. <laughs> right? On the traditional Christian picture, just as an analogy. Okay. The Logos becomes incarnate, uh-huh. right? Then the person, the, then the, the human being dies uh the, the logos doesn't see oh i suppose you've got the you've yeah. got complications with the, yeah right because <laughs> let, let's just let's just say let's just say we've, we're non we're a non, non-traditional christian where the body rots in the ground okay but the the, the you know the logos continues to exist just because it was instanti you know insta- instantiated in incarnate it, it can still exist without being incarnate so that's how i'm thinking of like blueness that's what we think of the soul right it's like a, 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 yeah, dual, a christian um, dualist would say that about the soul right But so for Aristotle or for David Armstrong, you know, the, the, the blueness is a literal constituent of us. Of a, forget Jesus. That was it. That was an unnecessary <laughs> digression. <laughs> don't don't forget uh, Jesus at home. folks. Yeah. Don't forget you. Just uh, <laughs> yeah. Put Jesus on hold. Sure. Uh, you got, you know, the blueness is a literal constituent. You see, you got a blue ball. The blueness is a literal constituent of the ball. But 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 that very same thing can exist uninstantiated. Yeah. Uh why not? Why can't why can't why can't it exist uninstantiated? Isn't that just Platonism um, though? Doesn't isn't that just that's what Plato says, I think. Um but they wouldn't but say think, instantiated. They I mean say... well actually I was talking to uh, Sophie Grace Chapel on Twitter about this and her interpretation of Plato what was kind of this, but I guess that my possibly ignorant view of Plato was I thought that that the, the, the forms aren't literally physically present. Oh yeah, you know. The, so that the end, the object is related to blueness, but I'm thinking, no, no. The, the blueness yeah. makes up the object. The forms 
literally partly constitute the object. Yeah. But it's just that it's when it's not the object... just an exemplification relation, it's like they they are there. Yeah, now I see how it's yeah. So so now the hope is you get through the epistemological problems because if if you know if blueness is like really here, mm-hmm. then maybe I can be acquainted with it, or or I would prefer if it's literally in my consciousness, then I can be acquainted with it and I can know its necessary properties, or um, and if if the form of a state of affairs is is literally present. Yeah. In any state of affairs, then I'm acquainted. I can be acquainted with it in my consciousness, and I can learn about its essential, necessary properties, like the law of non-contradiction. So, yeah, the hope is this Aristotelian Platonism that might just be Plato's view, if Sophie Grace Chapel's right, is um, you know can get around the epistemological and and the metaphysical, get around the epistemological issue, and also ground necessary truths, which I worry if they're contingent. I don't see. Yeah. So this is this is where I like the the conversation like <clears throat> because because I want to bring in theism and I want to say well you know the law of non-contradiction is a proposition in God's mind about all the propositions or something and the truth maker for it is is his own his own character his own nature something like that God is God cannot lie God can you know and maybe bring in some theology there but I think that this is like the fun the fun conversation where we say maybe we, you know, you say, hey, I, don't, I don't think so. You know, I don't think that there is this necessary being. I think that being is necessary. Uh, and it's not a, it's not an agent. And I want to say, well, there is an agent. Just put an agent at the beginning. And that's a better explanation. And now you say, well, what about evil? And and that that's fun. Like this is, this is the conversation I think that I would love to see happen more often in uh, philosophy and philosophy of religion type conversations. Yeah. But does, I mean, you could, I mean, you could incorporate this in a, in a in a theistic picture where, yeah, the forms exist necessarily. They're really instantiated. Um, well, if it, again, I guess then if, if you're going to have the view I've just described, there, then you'd have to have parts of God really instantiated in the physical world. Might be all right. A kind of um, panentheistic now, view, yeah, right? You know, yeah. I don't think that's too heretical, if heretical at all. Um, but then I suppose I'm just thinking, you know, I always want to think, what 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 do we get from this datum? What I I don't think you'd get any from just from this datum of like explaining necessary truth or explaining moral truth for that matter. Hmm. I don't see why you you'd need to have theism come out of that. I, so I I don't even think I had this universal consciousness view. I don't even think actually you need the thing to be conscious anymore. Hmm. I, I I think my views developed a bit, so it. I think you can make sense of this Aristotelian Platonism, yeah, without any, without even thinking of any conscious. But you might, I could see how you could combine these things with like fine tuning, maybe a bit of cosmological argument, and you could, yeah. you could, you could argue for some that this kind of simplest, the simplest way of account for all these things is some kind of theism. Well, at that I'm, point, though, yeah. I would say problem of evil. If you're right. going to go that way, my deal breaker would be it's got to have limited powers or or have, it's got to be you've got to tweak some of the omni properties uh because yeah. of evil but that's a big discussion right right and and that's that's what i'm thinking with with uh of cosmopsychism i think is like i think it's a, a a really important thing for theists to be thinking through and so i think like when when we're considering agentive cosmopsychism and what it what it seeks to accomplish what it does accomplish what can it, it can explain I think the 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 real questions are going to be at the deeper level of like logic and 
consciousness uh, instead of like the fundamental fine tuning type stuff. Cause I think, or, or fine tuning, because I think um, it can make sense of fine tuning, you know? So now we got to go deeper and say, well, can it make sense of logic? Okay. Well now you have this other stuff. How does a theist make sense of logic or how is it more uh, parsimonious or how is it more uh, have more explanatory power? And that's like where the debate should be. And I just think it's fun. I just think like that's 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 how you advance the conversation type stuff. Absolutely. There has been a reply to this by Christian. Um, who's the guy? Do you know the guy who's from Hong Kong who's really into William Lane Craig? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, low? No, it's not low. Mine's gone blank. Uh, I, I, I can't think of it now either. I'm anyway, so bad names, but Andrew Luck. Is it Andrew? Andrew, Luck? Yeah, yeah, Andrew. Yeah. Um, he's got some. He's responded to me on you know saying this isn't a good response to fine tuning just just not even on that basis but but yeah i agree with you i agree with you i think it's going to be it's going to be a bigger story than that and yeah people have just been ignoring these these middle way possibilities i think yeah um well and a lot of the younger folks aren't like a lot of the a lot of people i talk with college students they they talk about panpsychism all the time they talk about simulation hypothesis all the time and kind of the old way of the new atheist type stuff it's out it's like yeah no no one really cares about that anymore yeah but a lot of the people keeping it going are are christian apologists who bring it back up and they go wow what about this like dawkins what are you you talking about i know Uh, they care about pacifism yeah and good riddance you know it was so simple-minded wasn't it you know it makes (laughs) makes makes me want to be a theist really Uh, (laughs) uh you know but then i think about uh, yeah yeah, things evil. Things annoy me equally about William Lane Craig. and <laughs> <laughs> So that's why, yeah, you know, I just thought, you know, yeah, anyway. Yeah. But, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, I, I agree that things, you know, and, and things that, but we need we need to bring, you know, into rigor and intellectual respectability. To, I think that people do think of a middle way between God and atheism, but they think it's all crystals and fluffy thinking. <laughs> and I want to know. You know, yeah. why should it be? Why yeah. read Miri Al Bahari and tell me that's fluffy thinking? You know, this right. is why can't the I think these why can't these topics be treated with rigor and seriousness? And yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Well, and and I I love that you brought that up because a lot of it, you know, people think uh, New Age. Uh, they think of like California yoga, like hot yoga or something like that, and like oh, you know, Namaste. And it's like no, dude. There's there's a whole tradition here, Eastern tradition, but also like. I think you mentioned this in your essay. Aldous Huxley wrote about this and calls it the perennial philosophy. And he traces it back throughout history and says it continually pops back up. And it's, I think he thinks it's older than theism itself too. So it's, it's, it's a rigorous thought that you should deal with. You should be working on. Um, And I don't know, to me, it's just more fun. It's more fun to be thinking through this type of stuff. Um, But I I wanted to finish with, uh, I I think probably some of the listeners will be thinking this too. but I've been thinking it. So even if they haven't, you you talk about this in the end of uh, Galileo's Error, which is uh, another great book, um, Consciousness and the Meaning of Life. And so if the universe designed itself, if uh, agentive cosmopsychism is true and we can't make sense of the logic constraint and the consciousness constraint, the, even the epistemological aspect of the logic constraint, what what's the meaning of life if there's no overarching um, designer like qua god if there's no like the universe just designed itself is there a meaning to life or or 
do we make our own meaning? What do you think about that? Wow. Um, so, I mean, I certainly think just panpsychism is is an important hmm. part of human meaning because, well, I guess I think materialism is ultimately incompatible with the reality of consciousness. And I think people feel that on an intuitive level. Yeah. You know, people express it by you know thinking love isn't just chemicals in the brain. And that sounds very trite, but I think there's something, there's something solid underlying that intuition. And this is like the hardest so, problem of consciousness or like the meta problem. It's like, it's the problem of why does it seem like physicalism is false? Um, yeah, how do we? Well, I suppose um, I suppose for someone on my side of the debate, it seems false because it because it is false. Yeah, right. Although it's still, I mean, I think God, the meta problem is another thing. I think the meta problem arises if, if like Chalmers, you think you do have a, a totally reductionist picture of of the, of the of, of behavior that it's all physically explicable. Mm-hmm. Then it's a bit weird. What so you could give a physically a kind of reductionist picture of me saying, wow, consciousness is weird. Um, and then that, that, that starts to be a real paradox. Whereas I guess I'm, I'm not inclined to that very reductionist picture. So I'm not sure I, the meta problem is, is, is a big deal for me, but, but, um, so I think, you know, moving to a worldview, uh, which is not incompatible with the very reality of consciousness is the first step. I, I am a very strong value realist. Yeah. I've talked about this a lot that, um, you know, for me, there are things that are objectively pointless, like hmm. dedicating your life to counting blades of grass is objectively pointless. And I think about I, you every time I mow my grass now too, because I've heard you say this a couple times. I'm like, don't count the grass, Parker, just mow it. <laughs> yeah, I think people are bored of me talking about blades of grass. <laughs> but um, so, I mean, that's a, that's that's a crucial point. So, yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of things wrong with our worldview that I think we have a worldview that is incompatible with the reality of consciousness, incompatible with the reality of value, you know, and I think people just think about moral value, but value claims are ubiquitous if there's if there's if there's literally no value truths there's no reason to believe or do anything um which is horrific but so suppose we get that suppose we get consciousness and we get objective value but light but the universe is still going to come to nothing I think that's not terrible. I think, you know, again, with the dichotomy, some people say, you know, William Lane Craig says, that is, if there's no God, we might, everything's absolutely screwed. And he even says, you know, there's nothing wrong with murdering people if there's no God. Yeah. That seems to be total overkill. And an atheist who says this is what, the anti-natalist guy, what's his name, Jim? I talk about this in my book. Anyway, the guy who thinks it's immoral to... uh, bring children into existence oh yeah yeah pointless and uh so i think that's overkill but on the other hand that the 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 kind of secular idea that there's there's nothing problematic with the fact that the universe is going to come to nothing uh i think there's something wrong there too it it would certainly you know we want our lives to make a difference you know we want to make it if there was a purpose to the universe and we can contribute in some ways to that greater purpose that would be much better yeah. and 
I do think there are some reasons to take seriously that like the fine tuning, uh, the possibility that there is a point to it all, that there is a purpose that is still unfolding. Yeah. We don't know yet what that's all about, but this, that, that is still unfolding and that we can in some way conceive of what we're doing as contributing to that greater purpose. I think that is a, you know, a deeper way of living hmm. um, that there is enough enough reason to take to take seriously to make it worth engaging with at least as a possibility yeah does does value realism incorporate moral realism is that like a subset of value realism or is, are those separate things i would say moral realism is a subset of value realism so I mean, value realism is is what I'm like more. So I used to be a I used to be a moral anti-realist. I used okay. to when I first started my graduate study, I used to think, yeah, there can't be facts about good <laughs> and bad, you know. But then when I got to think, hold on, is counting blades of grass just the same as scientific advancement or pleasure? You know, yeah, <laughs> living your life for pleasure, as, you know, as opposed to living your life just for the sake of counting blades of grass, something <laughs> totally, totally uh, or or evidence, you know, like value claims in evidence, like you should believe the truth, you shouldn't g- believe against the evidence, you shouldn't believe yes. contradictions. I love that. Yeah. Right. So I'm I'm just it's just it seems totally evident to me that there there is objective value. Okay. And now moral realism is a further state, further claim, but I think once you once you believe in objective value, I, it's hard to me to think why you wouldn't have some sort of moral realism because presumably you know the suffering of others is bad it's not, yeah. it's not gonna be just like my suffering is bad if suffering is bad suffering is bad and so um so i think once you're into value realism david enoch is um one of the one of the leading value realists and he i mean he kind of makes this point he argues with value realism and says you know once you're a value realist it's probably going to be leads quite naturally to moral realism. Okay. I mean, maybe not like, you know, again, coming back to my old friend, William Lake, <laughs> uh, you know, he, he always think, you know, the, the moral argument for God, it's got to be moral obligations in this kind of really hardcore sense where it's, it's, it's going to have to be divine commands or something. But so, uh-huh. you know, there are lesser and stronger. I, I probably myself wouldn't believe in something like sin or, you know, wretchedness and i don't know but 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 some moral realism in the sense like other people's suffering matters yeah so like uh if like a serial killer who tortures people for fun is wretched though you'd say that right like yeah what what do i mean when i say that i suppose um i don't believe in moral badness of the kind that god would have to punish us for that kind of i think like Certainly Hitler. Oh, I think I think what Hitler did is very bad in the sense that it was it, the suffering he caused was terrible. Okay. I, I guess I don't believe in sort of like, oh, he's sort of scarred by sin in that sense. I mean, he he did very bad things, <laughs> uh, you know, because what he did was bad. Yeah. I'm repeating myself slightly. They, the, um, I'm kind of thinking on my feet here. The, yeah, the, yeah. Sorry, the, I know. The, I'm the, no, no, it's good. Yeah. The, the the suffering. I just I may retract this, but the, sure. the suffering he caused uh, was bad. But I, I guess I guess I don't believe in sin in some sense, like the um, um, 
I don't believe in sin. I think people do bad yeah. things. So, but there are there are objective moral facts. Yeah, there are there there, there are there are good and bad things, actions, states of affairs, and that we we sh it's good. You know that gives us reason to promote good ones and not do bad ones. But we don't we don't become sort of guilty by doing bad ones. Like I don't think. Okay. So, well, so that that seems to me like a more old school morality. Like, and this is where I become more secular when it when it gets sure, under ethics. Sure. I'm much more sure. like. Um, you know, it seems to me like you know vengeance or things. You know, we we we, we tend not to think vengeance is or honor. You know, these are these are maybe maybe anti-realist about these kind of moral categories. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, but, I mean, so, sin is slightly different, but yeah, th those kind of moral responsibility in that sense that you're sort of impugned and deserving yeah. of punishment. I'm not sure I, I go for that. So you went in for like. Uh, a, a particular type of truth maker theory when we're talking truths and i wonder when it comes to like moral facts though aren't there moral facts that make this action or that action good or bad yeah i would say universals of positive yeah. and, and and negative value where, and, where, where um, the, like where where do you ground those like uh, does panpsychism give a unique explanation like are they grounded in if you're a cosmopsychist are they grounded in like the cosmos itself Sorry to bring up grounding. So I know that's like my, yeah. my so my late my latest. So I yeah I did have an article for Nautilus magazine where I try to spell out like the universal consciousness view for this, but I've I, I've I've moved. I've, my thinking has changed okay. again. It's closer to this Aristotelian Platonism. So I basically think there is you know universals of positive positive and negative value, and. Which states of affairs that they are instantiated in is grounded in their nature. So that so the nature of goodness, goodness is essentially such that it's instantiated in pleasure, understanding. Uh, badness is essentially such that it's instantiated in suffering, ignorance, and so on. I kind of think you need, I kind of think you need positive and negative universals mm. uh, because. I think you know the badness of suffering isn't just the privation. absence of yeah, yeah. I don't like the privation view. Sure. So this is actually m one reason why I'd probably depart from traditional theism. That I think I think badness must come from God. But that doesn't mean that doesn't mean God's bad. Yeah, it just means or the foundation of you know, it just means that the the possibility of badness because is, you think it's a it's, it's a positive thing. Negative. Yeah, it's, just, it's, it's not just a negative. Thing. So yeah. it doesn't mean, you know, God, the, 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 the possibility of badness, that the form of badness is within God's being, if if there is a God in some sense or a foundational mind, a cosmopsychic mind. But that doesn't mean, yeah, that doesn't mean the foundational mind is bad. It just means the form of badness is within. Couldn't, couldn't um, it be in direct contradiction? So if, we, if we, I'm trying to keep in a, in a more traditional, if, if God is good, um, there could be bad things that exist outside of him that exist uh, by his decree, or if he if he if, if he allowed it to happen, whatever. However, we get there, there could be an evil thing outside of him, and the evil is indirect opposition to his goodness. But it doesn't. The evil doesn't have to be posited back up into his being, does it? Well, because it's but it, the the ne what grounds the necessary truth that pain is bad? That's the thing. What what grounds the necessary truth that suffering is bad? I think that is a necessary truth. So I think we need a 
we need something that exists necessarily to ground it. Wait, uh, pain, I, pain is bad. Isn't can't pain be good sometimes? Like, uh, yeah, let's okay. just know that we have a cut or something. Yeah, it's always more complicated. Treat. I would say ceteris paribus pain is bad. All okay. things being okay. equal, obviously, okay. yeah, it can be good in the round, but uh, and I, yeah, I just don't find it plausible that that it's the privation view. So sure. So I think there must be the form of badness hmm. at, at the at the fundamental level. Um, couldn't it be? Der- couldn't it be um, derivative? Like, there's the form of goodness is at the fundamental level, and the form of badness is. Uh, somehow to, yeah not at the fundamental level maybe maybe you know, i'm very minded on these things but um i mean my, my stripped down moral theory i think would yeah. be there's just two f- yeah here's my platonic form i've just i think i, I want to try and do as many few form usually when people go for platonism they just think oh we'll have loads of forms <laughs> awesome all but, in yeah i don't know what this be possibility so i would have positive so people can tell me what this can't have positive and negative um Universals of positive and negative value for morality. All of morality okay. done there. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, the form of the number <laughs> for mathematics. I don't see why you have to have all of the numbers. If you got one, uh, you got them all. Yeah. It may be zero though. Zero is a um, one. Yeah. I haven't thought this through very much. Yeah. Uh, but this is this is a general direction. Yeah. And for the law of non-contradiction or for logic, the form of the state of affairs. So yeah, I just want to like a, a couple of forms. I mean, people. I'm. 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 I'm it's not exactly my skill set like maths and logic but i would like someone who who's better at maths you know philosophy of maths than me you know try and work out if you get like a minimal set of forms yeah um to get a That's really stripped down platonism but yeah in morality i would hope that you can just make do with universals of positive and negative value um yeah, yeah. Um, i'm probably going to have to make a move around because otherwise this is Really, one of the best conversations I've had in a while, and I'm I'm, I'm going to um, struggle to. No, this was down. this was awesome. <laughs> this was this is uh, this was like a perfect natural uh, place to end here. Um, man, Doctor Goff, thanks so much for for all your time here. Thanks for uh, stretching the limits with me and going all over the place. I really appreciate it, and really looking forward to that new book. Um, do you? Before I let you go, do you have a any idea when that will be uh, out or anything? Not really. It's very early days. Just as a draft currently under review. So. Awesome. Um, it's okay. going to be a while. Um, no, but thanks very much. This is, yeah, it's been really helped me think through some of these things. And it's been fantastic. Yeah, not not everything I've said tonight is totally thought thought through, but just, um, but you know, it's that. good yeah. to just uh, try out ideas. People can tell me if I've made some mistakes somewhere. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to actually getting back to writing some academic papers now. Actually. I've done a lot okay. of popular stuff and I need to get back to writing some academic papers. So um, yeah, that's well, good. Well, that that's fantastic, and I think that, that I um, um another thing to commend about you. I, I've said it probably already before, but I, I like that you are you have a foot in the popular world and you have a foot in the academic world, and you're kind of balancing, spinning the plates here, spinning the plate here, and I think that's that's what philosophers need to do more of if philosophers are going to you know regain the 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 voice in the public conversation. And so I, I appreciate you doing that. Um, if you guys want to check out more from Dr. Goff, look at um, Galileo's error. Also check out Consciousness and uh, Fundamental Reality, which I believe is based off your dissertation. And it's like the academic version of this one. And then uh, I will put a link to his uh, to his website in the description. And then also check out MindChat. 
uh, where he's with uh, Dr. Keith Frankish, and they are radically different on theories of mind, but they have awesome guests on as well, and it's just a fantastic time. Yeah, have an argument with me on Twitter, Philip underscore Goff, always arguing on Twitter, and um, I might set up my own podcast soon, actually, for some kind yeah. of less big, big, big questions not entirely related to consciousness. Awesome. Um, but yeah, no, I totally agree. Philosophers should do more public philosophy. I'm, I'm debating with the uh, Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop oh, awesome. of Canterbury, this Friday. Fantastic. I'm having another debate with Anil Seth, who yeah. I've debated a lot, and, and philosopher Laura Gow. But um, yeah, really excited. It's really it's so exciting doing popular philosophy, meeting yeah. you know Philip Pullman and yeah. Rowan Williams, and um, I'm uh, I'm going to get definitely get a selfie that I'm going to be. <laughs> <laughs> tweeting at the earliest opportunity my that's parents are coming i'm from liverpool originally so that's so Quite, good um, i'm like a little little schoolboy with this this next thing yeah anyway well, yeah, yeah folks that's gonna have to do it for now uh uh dr goff has to go off to bed here but um this has been parker's pensies and uh if you like it leave us a comment leave us a like all that stuff and definitely do check out uh the mind chat podcast for now that's it folks uh this has been parker's pensies and as always all glory to god